Mighty God and Everlasting One, we come before you as we respond to your word, Lord. We come before you here in Genesis 17 as we've come to the sign of the covenant and ask that you would be gracious, O Lord, merciful to us, that as we hear the word itself, that you would instill in our hearts a desire to follow after you as we should. We pray, O Lord, as you have so instructed Abraham, as we see now, as you change his name, as you give him instruction, that we would respond with the same like faith, him being the father of our faith, as he did. We ask, O Lord, that you would be gracious to us in helping us understand this particular chapter, knowing how pivotal it is to your covenant and covenanting with us. We ask for your grace in these things. Help us to understand it as we work through it over these next couple of weeks. And we ask for your grace in it, in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 1 through the end of the chapter. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. 
Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. And my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time set next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, as God has said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael his son was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day... Abraham was circumcised, and his son Ishmael, and all the men of his house, born in the house, or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. The text is divided into a few different sections here, about five in different aspects of what God is explaining to Abraham. It's been 13 years since Abram, at that point, heard from God. And a theophany appears before Abram. El Shaddai speaks with his servant. He requires faithful obedience to his revealed will. He says that he is to be perfect. And perfect means to walk blamelessly. To be like the perfect animal for sacrifice without any kind of blemish on it. We have the promise of the covenant in verse 2. The word covenant used 13 times in this one chapter alone. God's usage of his will as responding to covenant ideas is used 18 times in the narrative. And we have the promise that Abraham will be multiplied exceedingly. He falls on his face before God. He's prostrated before him. And there, God changes his name to Abraham and explains the promise that's already been given to him. This is a further explanation of what God has already said in heralding the gospel to Abraham. Abram, which means exalted of the father, God changes his name to Abraham, which is the father of a multitude. It's a play on the Hebrew words. The sovereignty of God being emphasized in the passage. God changes and names things. Adam had named the animals. Adam had named Eve. God names Abram to Abraham. It's a demonstration of sovereignty. And the force of the section is under and within the guise of God's work and the I will what he will do. I will make you a great nation. I will have multitudes come from you. I will bless. God's going to do all these things. A great lineage is going to come from Abraham. And it will be everlasting. It will be forever and ever. Literally. They will inherit the land of Canaan. But, as God has already spoken... God will be their reward, verse 8. Then, 
God places upon Abraham, the father of a multitude, the requirement of the covenant. Verses 9 to 14. God will stand for nothing less than full obedience. Verse 9. Abraham and his descendants are required to keep the covenant God makes with them. And to keep means to make a hedge about, to attend it, to protect it, to take heed of it, to observe it, to preserve it. Just like Adam was supposed to in the garden, so Abraham is now given that particular task. And it's repeated again in verse 10. Keep it. Then there's a repetition. The sign of the covenant is then given. Circumcision. A physical, procreative sign. A promise made to a certain seed. It's a pledge. It's a token in his flesh. It's the ratification of the pact or agreement that God makes with his servant. It's of sacrifice. It's of blood. It's in the foreskin of the federal head. The male was the spiritual head of the home. It's made with him. And each time the blood was spilt, each time someone was circumcised, it was a demonstration that the promise was being remembered. God tells Abraham, for some to neglect the sign of the covenant would be to be cut off from the covenant. And being cut off in the Old Testament is to be sent to hell, is to be cut off from his people, is to break covenant. The person who would not place the sign or carry on the sign would be deemed a covenant breaker. Abraham could not say to God, let's debate this. Let me think about whether or not I want to do this or not. Let me think if it's applicable to my children or the other people in my household. Instead, this is about the sovereign God who creates with his servant a covenant in which he sovereignly rules and tells them exactly what the stipulations are. There is then a further pledge, a demonstration of God's kindness to his servant Abraham. And the further pledge is the change of Sarai's name, even, from Sarai to Sarah, which now means princess. Lineages of kings are going to come from her. From the womb of Sarah shall the prince of peace ultimately come. And then there is a response of delight that's done by Abraham. And he laughs. It's not a laugh of doubt. It's not a laugh of, I can't believe God can do such a thing. It's, I cannot believe God is going to do this. Look how old I am. Look how old Sarah is. God is going to do it. They, they are too old. But Abraham knows the promise, and Abraham knows his God. 
as Romans tells us, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. He knows he and his wife will have to have a child now. But a concern is raised in his mind. He makes a plea for Ishmael, who is almost already a man. Shall he be cut off? That is what is going on in his mind. If God makes a blessing to me through Isaac and a promise to Isaac, a son that I don't even have yet, what will become then of Ishmael in which the promise has not been made? Abraham is very keen in his covenantal theology as what's going to happen to Ishmael, and so he pleads for him. But God says, no, the promise is not going to be made with Ishmael. The everlasting covenant is to be with Isaac. And it's a play on words. He laughs. It's going to be made with the one that Abraham laughed about. Or laughed in conjunction to the great power of God. The everlasting covenant will be in Isaac's lineage. Ishmael will have the son of the covenant, but will not have the promise of the covenant. And there is a response that Abraham gives that very same day, as the text says. On that very same day, everyone in his house, all of the male children, all of the servants, everyone was circumcised. The response was obedience. The response was walking perfectly and blamelessly before God. Blameless and perfect walking is a demonstration of Abraham's faith. So they're all circumcised. That is a basic overview of what happens in the passage. Now we have to take that and we really have to think about a number of issues that are going on in this particular passage. First, God is a covenant God, and God is a covenant God with his covenant promises to his people. In Genesis 17:7, God said, And I will establish my covenant between me and you for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you. Now, what does that mean? What did this mean to Abraham? The ratification of the covenant was a confirmation of what God had already promised in Genesis 12, what God had already promised in Genesis chapter 15. After the information given to Abraham in this chapter, there is relatively little content that's added in further aspects of what the covenant is about. In other words, God gives him a precursor in Genesis 12. He gives him a little bit more in Genesis 15. And then he gives him a lot more and explains everything that he needs to know in Genesis 17. This was the Lord's free gift of grace to Abraham, the father of all the faithful. What then would it mean that God would be a God to him forever? What does chapter 17 do to the concept of promise that's set on Abraham? Well, Abraham had believed the promises of God. Genesis 15 and Romans 4 attest to that. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, 
the covenant, God ratifies here with him 13 years later. And he tells Abraham that the son of promise would come and be his heir. God hasn't uttered a word to Abram from that time until this time. And the theological importance of that is enormous. Abraham believed God's promise to him for the past 13 years. He didn't waver at it. And then God came to him in Genesis chapter 17 and expounds on this covenant. The amount of time is really irrelevant. It could have been a year. It could have been five years. It could have been 80 years. It doesn't matter how long. Abram was simply being faithful to believe what God had said, no matter how much time would have spanned between the promise and the covenant ratification that God makes with him. But that was Paul's use of the passage in Romans 4, dealing with Abraham as having received the accreditation, the counting of righteousness, before the covenant was sealed by the covenant sign, or the external agent by which Abraham would remain faithful by God's command. He's the father of our faith. And in Genesis 17, the explanation of the covenant ratification is simply an explanation. An explanation of what Abraham is already part of. In seeing these promises come forth, there are a number of cycles of God's appearances and speeches to Abraham in the chapter. And what he basically does is take the good news of the promise and expound it and, and demonstrate to him that Abraham, if you are really one of my faithful, if you really are one of my elect servants, then this is going to be very important for you to walk blamelessly before me. There are two points in the passage that place an important impact on the narrative itself. The previous implications of Genesis 15 on the text and the promise of God to work through Isaac and Abraham's descendants. First, the implications of Genesis 15 are overwhelming. That Abraham would have thought that his seed and descendants are under the favor of God. That's the implication. And, Genesis 17, that narrative would have Abraham presumed them to be covenant members. The covenant members are God's people. God had said, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. That's Genesis 15. Abraham believed that God would bless him with a son. That son would have a special relationship with God and carry on that line. Not because of the son, but because of God and God's promises. Abraham would have to believe that son's inclusion in the blessing, in that special status, simply based on the promise that God made about his heir. He didn't waver at the promise, as Roman tells us, and the ratification of the promise is by God's divine oath. And that the spilling of blood and the circumcision event with Abraham would demonstrate his faithfulness. This is where God changes his status to Abraham, the father of nations. 
And there was no need to waver at the promise. Since Genesis 15 utilizes that inheriting idea, and Genesis 17 demonstrates it. As God promised Isaac as a seed, Abraham would have no reason to doubt that God would continue his promises in Isaac or in his seed and through to all his descendants. If Abraham disbelieved that Isaac would ultimately have been saved or did not believe him to be a covenant child based on the promises of God himself, he would have wavered at the promise. He would have been a covenant breaker. And it's enforced by Genesis 17. God says, first, walk before me and be blameless, which is an ethical notation. This is how you are to act. And the Hebrew construction here, running through the passage, expresses the intention of God, the will of God motif. This is what I, I want you to do, and if you do it, you will be a demonstration of those who follow me. In other words... God will establish his covenant with this kind of man, Abraham. He who walks before him faultless and blameless. But God's promise is extended here. Since in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham, and in 15 he promises Isaac, and in 17 he ratifies it by covenant introspection or covenant examination. He wants him to think about the object lesson that he's giving him. That every time he does this, it's a reminder of the promises that Abraham has had. It is expanded to include the family, the servants that are in his family, considered his family, which is the very reason why when Paul in Ephesians talks about the family of God and then moves to the family as in the house, he talks about husbands and wives and children and masters and servants. All of those involved in the family. Sarah and Abraham will propagate a godly seed in and through Isaac based on the promise of God. That is what is going to demonstrate, as James says, Abraham's faithfulness. There's no question that the word eternal in this section, doesn't appear in chapter 15, but it occurs three times here and fits very nicely here that the directions for obedience are tied to eternal ramifications. God tells Abraham to walk before him and be blameless, to keep his covenant and to follow setting the covenant sign on his household. God says that he is making a covenant with him and between them. Such a cutting is a more full pronouncement of the previous cutting of the animals that we saw in Genesis 15. Now, it's not just external cutting. It's going to be in their very flesh. If a person walks before God as blameless and faultless, God will recognize him. We know theologically, though, that those who are able to do this are only those who have been given a new heart, those who are regenerate, those who live by faith, and they have Abraham as their father. Genesis 17, 2 and verse 4 point to the reality 
that the ethics, the morality, the demonstration of a regenerated heart has to be copied by those who say that they are children of Abraham. They are of those that God says will be multiplied exceedingly. Literally, make you become exceedingly great. In other words, the descendants that come after Abraham, that are like him in his faultless, blameless stature, are those God will deal with. And Abraham, through them, will be exceedingly great in number. God will propagate seeds like Abraham. This obviously has a great connotation coming right out of the garden. Because this is what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. They were in the garden. They were supposed to protect it and keep it and keep covenant with God. Exactly the same ideas that are going on here. They are to go forth and do what? Multiply. Well, Adam, the priest of the garden, should have propagated the earth with godly seed, with more priests. But he didn't. He didn't conquer the world. And the word conquer means holiness. Propagation of that holiness. And we find that God changes Abram's name to exalted, from exalted father to the father of nations. Because now he is going to pick up that gauntlet and he establishes covenant with him, one of grace. And he is to go out into the nations and propagate those ideas. The seed which comes after him will be Abraham's children. God says, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations. For what kind of covenant? One in which just deals with a plot of land? No. An everlasting covenant. Why? He's speaking to Abraham. To be a God to you. What would that mean? If we were hearing those words, what would we believe those words to mean? God establishes, he places his eternal covenant upon his elect servant Abraham. And Abraham has a certain conception about what that means. And what that means is that God is his God. Forever. And here is the clincher to what God is doing through Abraham. He doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you and your generations for an everlasting... Well, wait a second. Seeds? You and your seeds? I will establish my covenant between me and you, and it doesn't stop there, and your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant. Why? To be a God to you and to them. It's the same terminology that will be used over and over and over throughout the prophets, throughout the New Testament, everywhere in the scriptures. The covenant formula. God states that he will be a God to Abraham and his offspring after him, his descendants, ultimately culminating in the fixed seed, the one to come that will fulfill the covenant completely and make its realities substantially known, which is Christ. But God is going to be a true God to Abraham, and he's going to be a true God to Abraham's descendants. And the covenant will be progressively manifested, 
and they will just receive greater light about the covenant as they move on through the scriptures, as God gives it out. It's used again, for example, in Genesis 28:21, where Jacob says, Then the Lord shall be my God. Same, same construction, same idea. I will be a God to you and your children after you. God will be my God. For God to be a God to someone is to demonstrate the promise of salvation to them. Other texts emulating this same runs all through the scriptures. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Romans, Corinthians, Philippians, Ephesians, all of the books of the Bible talk about, I will be a God to you. It's the implications that lie behind most of the New Testament, New Testament texts. What Jesus did. Since the Abrahamic covenant, or the demonstration of the covenant of grace, and the promises made to Abraham surrounds, one, covenanting, and two, salvation ideas, Abraham's interruption of the speech that God is giving him is almost somewhat expected. Why? He, he interrupts God. He goes, okay, if this is true. If what you're saying to me is true, and I believe that it is, I'm not wavering at the promise, but if that's true, what are we going to do with Ishmael? He's my son. Bad news for Ishmael as Abraham is thinking about it. Ishmael is going to be cast out. And this is a concern for Abraham who desires his son to be blessed. And not just simply materially blessed, but spiritually blessed. He wants the same promise that's made to his seed Isaac to be to Ishmael. So there's a theological pause here. Remember, God called Abram out of Ur. He established a covenant with him, and he says that this covenant is ratified in himself, and that there's a sign to the covenant which he has to take in place on everyone in his family, for better or for worse, for blessing or for curse. He states, that is God, that God is going to be a God to Abraham and to his descendants. But, both Abraham and his descendants receive the same state or relationship in a demonstration of covenant signs. God is a God to him and to them. The text cannot be any clearer. If God were a God to Abraham as a saving, loving, eternal covenant God, would Abraham think any differently about Isaac? No. But now what does he do with his son Ishmael? What happens to him? Abraham knew his own state before God. His own state was one as a friend. But God is specifically revealing to him that his son is not going to be the heir. Rather, Isaac will be. Ishmael will not. Abraham, what would he have thought about Isaac? Let's ask that question. What would Abraham have thought about Isaac by promise? If he's a friend, and God is saying that the relationship that he's going to have with Abraham is going to be the same with his covenant children, Isaac, with the promise, what would he think of him? Was God telling the truth? Was he lying to him? To answer this, we should consider what happens to Ishmael in the structure of this narrative. And then later to Isaac, following in Genesis 21, as we're going to find out. Ishmael has the sign of the covenant placed on him, but he's not converted. He's cast out and he's cut off. Abraham is told that in Isaac, 
God would continue to be God to him and his descendants. It culminates with this problem of illegitimacy. What are we going to do with Ishmael? Abraham's a loving father. He wants to see his son be blessed. But God's speech, when Abraham asks that question, is in the form of a rebuke. He says no. The word indeed is used in verse 19 to demonstrate that. Ishmael indeed. Ishmael will not be the son of promise. However, God demonstrates compassion on a loving father and grants his prayer that Ishmael at least be temporarily blessed. And that in and of itself, the God who sees an Ishmael is a play on words. It doesn't mean, though, that Ishmael is part of the promise. It does, however, mean that he's part of the covenant. Abraham is bound by God's command. And as a result, he places the curse of the sign on his son Ishmael. And Ishmael is circumcised even though Abraham is privy to the information that most parents are not privy to. And he knows that his son will be in a state of cursing and even that sign will be a further curse to him. God instructs him, though, that Ishmael will not be part of the promise and the blessing of the covenant. That is only to remain in Isaac alone. Yet, he still receives the sign. Why? Because if Abraham doesn't put the sign on him, then he is not, according to God's commands, being blameless and walking thoughtlessly. By neglecting it, he would have been filled with blame and he would have been at fault. He would not have done what God told him specifically to do. God does not make or establish a covenant with Ishmael, but does give him some temporary blessings. The covenant is effectually made, though, with the elect. Here's the second question that we have to ask based on what's going on in this passage. Everybody in the covenant, everybody in the covenant of grace, are they saved? Well, the answer to that is no. There is an internal aspect of the covenant and an external aspect to the covenant. Internally, that's election. Before the covenant sign, Paul's argument, before the covenant sign, Abraham had already been credited as righteous. Genesis 15, back over here. But, externally, there is a visible covenant community. And externally, the privileges of that covenant community are demonstrated initially by the covenant sign that's placed on him. If Ishmael is a son of Abraham, why is the covenant not made with him as well? Well, because the covenant is propagated by Abraham and Sarah, not Abraham and Hagar. There's a promise to be kept. God has chosen families by which he will progressively move his covenant promises through time. And they will ultimately come in the fulfillment of what God does with Christ. The prayer of Abraham, though, is strewn with anxiety. Ishmael is not part of the covenant, not part of the internal aspects of it, which renders the implications of anxiety that he had very well placed. But Ishmael will be cut off from the covenant's eternal nature and blessing. Only Isaac will receive the internal promise and blessing. 
the father of many nations, did not include the Ishmaelites, who actually proved to be a huge thorn for Israel much later. And it's interesting, and this is something that covenant concepts have to demonstrate to our own mind and prove to our own mind based on these passages, God does not covenantally disavow Ishmael. God does not covenantally disown Ishmael simply because of human conduct. It's not that. It's because of his divine initiative that he does. The Abrahamic descendants are maintained in the everlasting covenant by way of God's promises that the seeds are relationally his, not based on what they've done, but on his gracious covenant, what God has done. The seed will include not only the lineage, but all those in the household. And that's something that Luke picks up in the book of Acts. We don't see individuals being baptized over and over and over with covenant signs. We see whole households doing so. And the moment God has finished speaking with Abraham in this theophany, he immediately, that is Abraham, immediately went out and embarked on taking and fulfilling what God told him to do. He enacted the right of the covenant sign upon everyone in his household that God told him to do it to. What could have been going on through his mind in circumcising Ishmael? Or circumcising some of the bought slaves that he had? God had rejected Ishmael by way of covenant, but all those in his household should be circumcised. Should have the covenant sign placed on them as a result of what? The command of God. As one is to walk blameless before God, the opposite of being blameless would be not to place the covenant sign upon those in his household. The covenant then would be shunned. He would be in rebellion against God. And at that point, God would tell him that he is breaking his covenant. In that act of circumcising his son Ishmael, he was setting up Ishmael, known to him, of not being a son of promise for more wrath in the end. The covenant sign would be positive for Isaac and negative for Ishmael. Isaac was the child of promise. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. This is an irrevocable Everlasting covenant that God maintains through the family. That is why through the prophet Malachi, what does God desire of parents? What does God desire of mothers and fathers? God desires, according to Malachi 2.15, godly seed. But we have another pause that we have to take in the narrative. And that pause is a notation. It's a midrashing. It's a commentary on this passage that Paul gives in Galatians 3.16 and in Romans 9.8. Because he demonstrates that ultimately the seed of Abraham is ratified in the line of the faithful culminating with Jesus. Those who walk blameless and faultless do so as a result of ultimately the seed. The one 
who comes and keeps covenant with God perfectly. The promise is made to individual descendants and families, which include Gentiles based on the father of many nations idea. God didn't just say there was going to be the Jews. He said you're going to be the father of many nations. But there's that spiritual element that only those of faith are the true heirs of electing grace as Abraham was. The internal privileges will be seen in the culmination of what Jesus accomplishes. It doesn't discount the reality that when a child receives the covenant sign that the promise made by God to Abraham, the father of our faith, should be disannulled. It's not that at all. That would be preposterous. That would contradict everything that God had just told Abraham. It would make God to be a liar and to overthrow the gospel as we have it in Romans and Galatians. Not everyone in the covenant is saved. But there is an external nature to it. That is why Ishmael gets the covenant sign. That is why Esau will get the covenant sign. That is why Saul will get the covenant sign. That is why everyone in Lydia's household will get the covenant sign. That is why everyone in the jailer's household will get the covenant sign. It's the way of the covenant. It's the way that God deals with his people. God makes himself known to us and gives us a sight of him by faith and takes us into covenant with him. That's the paradigm of the entire Bible. And then we, based on the covenant promises, draw in to his covenant all of our household. God names Abram, Abraham, father of multitudes, before he is a father of multitudes. It's a promise. The reason he will be a father of multitudes is because God calls things that are not as if they are. He knows what the lineage is going to be. He knows what the people are going to be. And they're all going to rest on him. The covenant could never, will never, and won't ever rest on man and rest on what he does. What those things do is demonstrate their faithfulness to the covenant. How long will the covenant last? What did God say? A little while? A little bit of time? A few days? Until you die? He says forever. It's established by God through Christ and is never altered. It's never revoked. It's a covenant which is successive through the promised seed. Abraham is not going to be the only one. Elected, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, all the way to the perfect seed, Jesus Christ, and his spiritual offspring, because it is an everlasting covenant, a covenant forever and ever. It begins in time and continues forever, no doubt. Why? Someone who's not that great of a theologian, such as Mary, in Luke chapter 1, says these promises in which Jesus fulfills were made to Abraham. And the theologians, they're on track as well. That's why Zechariah, in the same chapter, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, says that God has been faithful to the promises that he has made to Abraham about what Christ does. The contents of that covenant are seen ultimately and completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Christ comes to ratify everything that God is telling Abraham right here. The covenant would mean nothing without him. The covenant mean, would mean nothing without Jesus Christ. The covenant with Abraham is pivotal to the entirety of the Bible. This is what Jesus comes to do. And the covenant of grace made here will be repeatedly quoted throughout all of Scripture. 
and is the basis of God's saving and redemptive hand, which will ultimately be seen in the person and work of Christ, through his death on a cross, by his resurrection, with his current intercession for his people, his covenant community. So the question then, the basic question that we would ask in dealing with this particular chapter at this point is simply this. We know God is a covenant God. We know he makes promises. What is a believer's response to the covenant that God makes with him? It's the same as what Abraham did. It is imperative that the sacraments which Christ has given his people be followed if we claim to be in covenant with God. Abraham, as a covenant member, immediately on that, quote, same day, on that very day, circumcised everyone that was in the camp, all of them. He made haste to do so when God told him that if he didn't, he would be cut off. In the New Testament church, we say, cut off this way. Those people who have deceived themselves into believing that they're saved and who attend church will be cut off from Christ. It's the same kind of concept. Jesus says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned, John 15 and 6. Abiding means bearing fruit. As Christ already explains in the previous verses, covenant breakers are cut off from Christ. They're burned. And Abraham shows himself to be in covenant because that day he produced fearful fruit before the Lord. That's why James demonstrates Abraham's demonstration of faithfulness. That's why the Westminster Confession talks about placing the covenant sign on our children and says in the only chapter and only place in all of the confession that, quote, it is a great sin to contemn or neglect this ordinance. Well, think about it. What constitutes a great sin? It's, only, it's the only place in the entire confession that calls something a great sin. Is murder a great sin? Is lying? False witness? Is idolatry? Great sins? When God promises something and someone disbelieves, that promise, it is a great sin. That's the point of Genesis 17. Not that Abraham was suddenly saved here. We already know that he was saved beforehand. But this demonstrates his savedness. It would render him not under the problem of having to excommunicate him from the covenant community, which... When someone in church, for example, doesn't repent of a particular sin, they would be excommunicated. We would go through the proper steps and ultimately treat them as one who is cut off. Abraham doesn't do that. God tells him what to do. He does it. App uh, applying this particular text to us right now in just those basic concepts the first thing that we would ask is, how do you see your children based solely on the promise of God? When a believing parent looks at their child, they remember the command of God to Abraham as well as the promise of God to him. With Abraham, it was twofold. I will be a God to you, that is to me, Abraham, 
and to your descendants after you. How would you differentiate that? How would you logically try to get around that? God is specifically saying that that covenant promise with Abraham is the same covenant that God makes with his descendants. How do we see then the children that are in our own family? How do we see our whole household as a result of that? It is a covenant promise made with Abraham that Christ ultimately fulfills. Such is the same for him, such is the same for us. There hasn't been a change. It's not that Christ threw it away. It's that he ratifies it. For the Christian, then, to despise the promise is to despise the same gospel preached to Abraham, which is Paul's argument in Galatians. The gospel was preached to him. Be like Abraham. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? Will he find a believing people that hold steadfastly onto God's promises or not? Think about the, think about the basics of the narrative. God comes to Abraham, tells him something, tells him something about his children, tells him what he's supposed to do, and he goes and he does it. It demonstrates and is faithful. To say that a child placed in the visible church, which is exactly what Abraham did, the covenant community, a child of promise by God, simply meant some type of earthly privileges. Abraham would never have thought of it that way. That wouldn't have even been in his mind that way. That somehow they just get some of the overflow of what's going on with Abraham. That's not what he was thinking at all. God made a promise to him and his children. That would be to undermine the entire tenor of the entire passage and promise. And to undermine everything that he had said that he would promise in the intentions of Christ fulfilling it. That doesn't mean that the covenant of grace is internally made with every child of every household. Rather, the covenant of grace is internally made only with God's elect. But the external administrations of the covenant render blessing or cursing. Eternally render those things for the covenant is everlasting. That is the way that God wishes us to think about our children. We have to then ask ourselves and examine ourselves just on that basic idea. Do we keep covenant or do we break it? Do we run with haste, as Abraham did, to observe the commands of God's ordinances or do we despise those directives? Do we treat those words lightly or not? Being of great importance means they must be more important than anything else. God's word and obedience are always linked together in that way. That's why we must run as quickly as we can to perform all which Christ has commanded us to do in the scriptures as covenant keepers, as one who claims to be, as Abraham did, in covenant with God. By those works you shall show yourself to be a Christian or not. And don't deceive yourselves into thinking that just simply praying a prayer of confession will suddenly usher you into the heavenly kingdom. You can't pull a card out of your wallet and suddenly flash it before God upon entrance into the pearly gates. It's wholehearted commitment to Christ based on the regeneration of your heart, based on the Spirit working through you, and mimicking 
the same faithfulness of Father Abraham. But here's also an encouragement. Based on this particular chapter for us, the promises are ours. Paul doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, the scriptures in the New Testament nowhere say that the father of our faith is Jesus or Paul or Peter or James. Paul's not an idiot to say that the father of our faith is Abraham. He doesn't say that it's himself or Peter or one of the other apostles. He says it's Abraham. That's who the father of our faith is. The same things that Abraham does, we do. Why? For the promises are yours. If we are faithful, if we have the entirety of the spiritual blessing, as Ephesians says, if it's ours, if we are regenerate, then the promises associated to that covenant that God makes with us are set for all that we are connected to. Especially for those of you who are federal heads of your families. God places upon you a special kind of command. A special responsibility in that you are the federal head of your family. Federal headship means absolutely nothing unless you understand the covenant. It doesn't mean a thing without those ideas, without those understandings set in place. The blessings are all yours. You can claim every one of them just as Abraham did. The rewards are yours, the anointings are yours, the triumphs are yours, the comforts are yours, the honors are yours, the exaltations are yours. It's freely all yours and your children if you believe the promises. That in and of itself should cause us to pause and think about the manner in which the covenant God deals with family. In these things, we should be encouraged. In these things, we should desire to uphold the same covenant that Abraham did. And as we search a little bit more, and as we deal with more of some of the specific texts, as we deal with them, we'll understand exactly what God is doing with Abraham and how these things are going to play out and be applicable for us as believers. Unfortunately, we're not going to stay here for... Fortunately for you, we're not going to stay here for six hours and discuss all of those things. We're going to break this up and talk about them based on this chapter over the period of a few weeks. At this point, simply pause. Make a theological reflection. You have one of two choices. Either your children are heathens and pagans or they are covenant members. How does God see them? How do you see them? That will determine your faithfulness and walking blamelessly before the covenant God who enacts his covenant on you as a believer. Let's pray together. Mighty God and everlasting Father, we thank you that as you are everlasting as the covenant God, that this covenant can't be revoked. That you're not a God who lies. That you're not a God who repents. That the promises are made without disavowing them. That they are fulfilled and ratified in the Lord Jesus. 
Help us, O God, to see how faithful Abraham was and how faithful we should be as covenant members of your church, regardless of what age we live in, Abraham's or David's or ours. We thank you, O Lord, that the everlasting nature of the covenant has been made known to us in the scriptures. We thank you, O God, that Christ came to reveal himself to us to fully demonstrate covenant faithfulness. And we ask, O God, that you would help us by the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of truth to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and demonstrate to you our faithfulness wholly by the Spirit's power. We so ask these things and pray that you would help us in these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.